Hello to my listeners and viewers. This is the latest edition of my podcast, Slaves to the Algo, where I seek to demystify how algorithms are taking over our lives as consumers and as professionals in, at work. Today, I'm delighted to have Kadambi Janardhan, popularly known as Jana. Jana is the EVP transformation of MasterCard and before that has worked in a variety of roles leading consumer banks around the world. Jana has been a person who's been a passionate data fanatic for the 30 plus years that I've known him. And he's seen how data and AI and the use of this has evolved over these years. Welcome to the show, Jana. Thank you. Thank you, Suresh. And the difference between you and me could not be more than night and day. You have bright sunshine behind you. I have the darkness of night behind me. And that's really the world of algos, isn't it? It can be a world of light. It can be a world of darkness. And we'll spend more time on it. But Jenna, how would you introduce yourself and your own relationship with data? You've been a financial services expert for more than three decades now. Okay, we'll take the expert bit with a pinch of salt. But uh, I have done uh, yeah, consumer banking first for 25 plus years in different geographies. And I saw the arc of how consumer banking moved from individual decisioning on everything to starting using data, but most of it was static demographic data-based uh, activity, right? It got interesting, largely driven by the compliance and risk space towards the later part of my career. And then as I say, I, I accidentally stumbled into the world of real data and real intelligence when I joined MasterCard. Uh, it's a company that moves information voluminous information mm -hmm. in real time mm -hmm. and actually decisions every single bit of information, right? So there is no lag in the decisioning of you know, the data that we see, most data. There's some data that we can uh, you know, use in a lag basis, but otherwise it's real time decisioning, which has been a fundamental change. And could you give us, you know, two or three examples of data uh, sets or algos that have um, kind of insidiously taken over, you know, our life that, you know, that you've been working on or, you know, companies are doing? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with personal, right? Uh, so I have become dependent to the Netflix recommendation, to the Amazon recommendation next to buy, right? It is just natural. I don't even think about it. It has, it is the easiest thing to do. So in a way, it has simplified some of my life, right? You don't have to go do research. I know that those recommendations are good and based on my preferences. On the business side, it has been interesting, uh, uh, Suresh. It started largely, as I said, from the risk space, right? Uh, where data is extensively used on the risk space. Then it migrated to another aspect of risk, which is fraud. And MasterCard does enormous amounts of work using data on fraud and algorithms uh, on fraud. Again, real time. The real value of it is not to give a framework of how to avoid fraud, but as the transaction comes, can you look at it and say, I can you know, avoid fraud. So that was the next. Then it migrated into the world of compliance. Right? Remember, we move financial data in huge volume. And so again, the static compliance models, the models that say, you know, we'll do a compliance check at the beginning, doesn't work anymore. You have to again make compliance decisions in real time. Then it migrated to the world of hiring. Right? Mm -hmm. Fortunately, 
we grow as a company, everybody grows. And data informs hiring. And to my mind, it does both. It perpetuates some of the biases that we have, but it also eliminates enormous amounts of hiring biases, right? The candidate pool that is served up is less biased than what a candidate pool would have been served up through human vetting. And human vetting practically would have been impossible. And then we've gone into new spaces, you know, uh, spaces like loyalty, where again, loyalty based on preference is one thing, but loyalty based on behavior demonstrated in an actual set of circumstances, which is what data helps you to do. I may prefer something, but my behavior when the circumstances change might be completely different, right? I might have multiple preferences. So again, that has been a fascinating journey to watch. So it is- And you know, it's, it, as you're talking, and I think in each of the examples you gave, and you know, it's just so coincidental that you started off by talking about night and day, night in New York, day in Singapore. But each of these just points out the fact that um, algorithms in every one of these things can perpetuate a bias or actually open sure. up discovery, right? I mean, you sure. talked about the consumer recommendation. I mean, you know, we do this, but uh, without thinking, but then, you know, we don't know what pigeonhole we're being put into. Uh, you talked about lending and, you know, the fact that, you know, we are able to perpetuate some bias in, you know, in lending and now hiring. So as a professional, can I, can I when you're one looking other at thing? this, yeah. Go ahead. There's one other thing that I see with data. The jury is out. If not watched, data can reinforce existing organization silos. We can come back to that later, but it, it can That's be interesting. Strong... And I'm going to come back to that later. Yeah. But just sticking with this whole theme, you know, I mean, when you have this situation where data can be used to shed light and open up discovery or mm -hmm. potentially become dark by perpetuating bias. How do you, I mean, you're a very senior leader, you're leading transformation in multiple areas in a large data company like MasterCard. How, how do you interact with the people in your company and tell them, hey, listen, we've got to avoid this because we have turned it over to the machines, right? Right, right. So I, I think uh, what MasterCard, I have no, you know, I can't take any credit for it. And, uh, but what MasterCard has done is like everything else, a company must have a clearly articulated set of data principles, right? And I continue to believe that a large part of a company culture going forward will be uh, dependent on the data principles and the data ethics that a company is able to articulate. I actually find it fascinating. So you know, I look at multiple companies, all of whom do algorithms, they build AI models, they, you know, uh, dealing with lots of data, I go to each of them and say, have they clearly articulated their data principles and data governance standards and data ethics? And MasterCard is public. It's on our website. You can see it. We mm -hmm. hold ourselves true and accountable to that. And it's a telling difference. There are stunning examples of large companies who will make statements about data, but try and find that data culture. Data culture is as important as organization culture. And it's evolving, Absolutely. right? I'm not arguing, I'm not arguing that it is perfect. I'm not arguing that it is well baked. But starting from that point onwards at least makes you aware of some of the pitfalls that you could get trapped into. You know, for example, would you anonymize data? What kinds of data would you share? How would you 
deal with third parties who also have access to the same data. All of this should be, and this is pretty simple. There are 10 or 12. I'm going to just dig a little deeper because you said something uh -huh. fascinating and I've never heard this term. So thank you for this one. Uh -huh. Data culture is as important as organization culture. People, right. So what is, I mean, who leads data culture? What do people do? How do you, how do you create a data culture of this awareness inside a company? Yeah. So, you know, it is the old cliche, right? Suresh, we all have heard that, you know, everything needs to start at the top. And we've heard that in the context of risk. If the CEO, you know, starts with a risk culture, the organization believes in risk culture. If the CEO starts with a marketing culture, mm -hmm. the organization believes in the marketing culture. And I think it starts at that level. It starts at that level. And it is telling us to what an entry level, entry level training would look like. They want training in companies. That is the other thing for fun I simply ask people as to what happens when you join a company and what, what are you told on day one? And it is fascinating to see what people go through on day one. Almost every single company is now using data in some form of fashion, using algorithms in some form of fashion, using tools in some form of fashion. Again, there's so many companies who don't think that this is the most important thing to talk about on day one. So I think the tone is set at the top. It is what you tell people as you enter is the most important thing, along with the culture of the company. What is the most important thing that you think uh, people should know about how a company or an organization deals with the data? What are the principles? What are the boundaries not to cross? I think it starts there and it evolves. And if there are bunch of people who believe in it, it catches root. So I'm going to go a level deeper. And I think that's, that's, that's again, so insightful that when you say that people don't talk about the data culture, it starts at the top and it, it, it's, a, it's a lovely phrase and a lovely way to think about it. But when you go into a meeting, how often have you sat in a meeting where someone says, I've been doing this for 10 years. I know how this works. Or how often do you even see uh, you know, on the one hand, you still have this very decision-making that's very gut, gut feel there. Yeah. And on the other hand, you see a whole bunch of people literally blindly trusting the data without questioning what went into either the collection or the way the algorithm is shaping it. So, I mean, can you perhaps just shed light on a couple of these instances that you see and how it's changing in the last few years? Yeah, yeah absolutely, right? So, you know, even as data models are presented, so the one thing that we do quite assiduously is to actually try and figure out what are the underlying assumptions that have been made, right? Before we accept the result, what are the underlying assumptions? And then we do run it past a couple of people who would also be experts. So our company is blessed like most other companies that, you know, it is not the expertise of one person. So if you run it past a lot of people, it begins to, it has to pass smell test. I still believe that it mm -hmm. has to pass smell test. And it's a tricky balance between saying, I will suspend my judgment for accepting you know, what my data model or my algorithm says versus saying, no, this does not pass my smell test to a large extent. Let me go back, rework, relook, challenge, right? So it is the kind of challenge you raise and when you raise it, that becomes completely important to my mind. And then the third so thing, do you see this? You know, uh, sorry, like people say, scale fast or you know, fail fast. Even with data models, I think there has to be a 
validation in a really, really quick, short time form, right? Uh, and it, it is quite possible to build those validations which say that within those 20, 30, 45 days of rolling out, what is it that we are seeing? And you have to be cognizant, and this is again subjective of saying what might be the bias filters and how does it stack up against the bias filters? Like that's a discussion most people miss. People track revenues, people track you know, applications, people track volumes. People do not, in a disciplined way, say against my bias filters, what am I seeing? And you have to see that very quickly. That's, that, that's very nice. And I'm gonna, again, go a little bit deeper in a moment, but uh, just coming back to this um, idea about, um, you know, when you said the people, you know, that there are people who are explaining or trying to tell you what are the assumptions and publish it. In another conversation I was having with somebody as we talked about the idea of explainable AI, that uh, uh -huh. today, if you go, for example, I mean, you know, the US election is on top of people's mind. Uh, there's a whole lot of polling sites. I mean, if you take the 538 model, they literally explain how the model delivers the output that it does. You know, many models like consumer things are saying, you know, recommendation in Netflix will say because you like something else. Uh -huh. So how, how do you think that this whole idea of explainable AI is going to become a big trend in the future as to telling people why you showed you something, why this model is, the output of this model is saying this? So I think there will be two things, Suresh, that I think will drive that. Both individual customers and consumers will start demanding that. And second, I would say regulations are moving in that direction. Both will happen. So I think this is a given. I, so, you know, one of the, so think about personal data as the most valuable emotional asset I have or you have. We should treat personal data as an emotional asset. Mm -hmm. We all treat your financial assets we are aware of, physical assets we are aware of. This is an emotional asset. And I think increasingly, partly because of regulators and partly because of how customers and individuals are beginning to think, think of it that you're dealing with people's emotional asset. And when you deal with people's emotional asset, two things are bound to happen. Transparency will be demanded and expected. And secondly, governance, you should expect, will be built around that principle. And again, that's interesting that you said, you're sitting in top, you know, in the, in the upper echelons of a large global corporation with a huge amount of data. We're seeing all this stuff with so many few companies dominating this world of data. And yet you said consumers will demand it and regulators will demand it. Is it that these organizations are being pushed to become transparent in their and and you know and and become ethical in their use of data because it doesn't seem to be coming from within it seems to be coming from without and perhaps I'm being harsh out here but you you know whether you see the movie like the social dilemma you see all the pushback against Google and the Twitter and Facebook feeds and all of that why is it that the change is not coming from within? So you know without taking names of organizations Suresh, I think it is both. So think of this as completely new. People are trying to figure this out, right? So while we think that this has been around for the longest time, it's about a decade or maybe a little over a decade kind of journey. So people are only beginning to figure this out now. And I think there have been organizations which have been in the forefront of this 
to say we'll be very careful in what data we use, what data we collect. Do remember, it starts at data collection, right? People mm -hmm. think that collecting all data is a good thing. I would argue collecting a lot of data is a bad thing because incumbent don't need to protect it. And yep. then if you do think that, you know, it is emotional, it's an emotional asset of somebody, you must mm -hmm. do something with it, right? You must attribute a value to it. Just collecting data because you can collect it as a useless activity, right? Saying I'll collect it because I can use it later. So I think, you yeah, know, it starts at, and organizations are beginning to figure that out. As I said, I'm not taking names, but people are beginning to figure out what do I collect? How do I use it? It's within the organization. There are lots of organizations which are not being compelled. So we use, look at all the press examples. There are a lot of organizations which are not being compelled to do this who are taking the stand saying that this will be a competitive differentiator and you can't build a competitive differentiator unless you're ethical about it. And so companies that see this as a competitive differentiator will gravitate to ethics far ahead of even consumers knowing or wanting it. And, and that force, that train has left the station. So that is happening, right? No denying it. And so about regulators ask for it. So I think uh, th this journey is, is obviously it's both a, a wasteland and a wonderland. And I think uh, I'm going to come back with some more deeper questions on things that consumers and as professionals, we should watch out for. Um, so Jana, I think uh, we were talking earlier about this whole thing about how, you know, people are going to make this a competitive differentiator, put in rules, do transparency, etc. One of the gentlemen on my show uh, was talking about how, you know, in the early 70s, all the food and like, you know, cosmetics companies didn't have labels. And he said, now you take the label for granted. Are we going to see a day? I mean, is that the kind of future you're envisaging? That there's going to be a label on the data saying this is exactly the source that went into it. This is the way the model did this stuff. This is you know, obviously not giving out the recipe, but literally putting it out there for people. Do you think that day is going to come? So I, I, I think some fashion of that will happen, right? And the two things are, I think people themselves become, will become aware. There will be more and more permissioned use of data. I do believe that will happen. I think, again, that is one other thing that is going to happen in our lifetimes, that permissioned use of data will happen. So do remember, people will become aware, consumers will become aware of what is the data that they're explicitly allowing to be used, to be shared, to be you know, targeted. And so I think at that stage, you will see more. The label part of it comes later, right? It is not the other way around. Yeah, I am the giver and I will make sure that I'm comfortable that, so today it happens on a click through. That world will change, that world will change. And there will be so many different ways that people can opt in, opt out, modify, change, all their opt-ins and opt-outs. And I think that world is coming. It'll That filter will be set at the stage. Could you give us some examples? I mean, because this permissions is a classic example, right? Everybody just clicks and says, I agree, because if you give me 88 pages of text written by a corporate lawyer, there's no way I'm going to know what permission I'm giving. Uh, so could you give us some examples of how we'll be having different ways to permission the data? Yeah. So, uh, so one, I do believe that somebody will actually build an algorithm of permissions itself that people can use. They say, you know, this is how different companies, you know, 
use your data and you know if you want to do this this is what you want to do so i think we'll also get a tutorial quite quickly on this but it is quite you know i think there is a growing class if you look at the millennials they're quite aware and they do two things one they're so tech savvy that they know how to navigate so a lot of this data collection is now happening because of the devices that we use right our devices are the primary source of data collection they are very savvy and it has in some ways simplified that life and as well that education grows beyond millennials we're saying it is so easy for me to control access through my device that will happen so that is definitely going to happen the second thing is disclosure statements that are happening right so in the old days the disclosure statements used to come in mail it used to be 20 30 40 pages and my belief is you can navigate a screen about 10x faster than you navigate flipping yep. paper right so when you are on a screen and there are disclosures that are company and a lot of this again i'm going to say this this is not because regulators demand disclosures some of it is that companies voluntarily are making disclosures disclosures are getting simplified more understandable because i think everybody realizes that this is the right thing to do and building an edifice on something that could disappear might not be the right thing so i i go through my disclosures which come in digital form very quickly and even though you know not of the generation of the millennials i become pretty savvy as to what are the permissions i granted and i have a really good idea of how my data has been used and i also know how to go and change it it is all in a simple tool right so as you read those disclosures it has become easy for you to modify your own permissions right so in a way digital has driven this whole adaptation and ease and the ability to change without writing letters to a po box or whatever to be able to do it in real time so that's kind of this thing jana do you know how much do you personally know how much data google or facebook um um has about you have you have you ever gone so, to one of those settings and i wonder this question i'm going to ask all my listeners and viewers this thing do you exactly know how much data google or facebook has about you have you ever been to those pages because now they are making it transparent but it's hidden behind some seven different places that you need to click in um so jana have you been there yeah and i have actually found it pretty simple right so again it is tempting uh, to you uh, pick up some poster boys and say that they are you know uh, whatever i find it quite easy and i would say i have a fairly good idea of you know what is the data i have i think they have also simplified a lot they have simplified it a lot so i, I, I don't know, think I, could you but the average consumer doesn't go and click any of these things and then we get surprised that you know that there is so much data about us out there which brings me to the next thing you talked about data being an emotional asset yes. and uh, i'm going to add what what exactly do you mean by that and i'm going to add a second question uh, uh-huh. actually owns the data about me i mean should it be me should it be a digital giant should it be the bank uh, or or the airline so who owns the data who should own the data about me so and, and why is this why do you call it an emotional asset so i call it as an emotional asset because it it is things that are deeply personal to me that profile me as an individual right so it is something that is extremely personal to me so think about it this way right i have whatever a wardrobe 
everybody has shirts, everybody has trousers, everybody has jackets and whatever else in the wardrobe. But my wardrobe is deeply personal to me. Same way the data about my behavior, my preferences, my inclination is deeply personal to me. So if you flip it and ask somebody, hey, you know what? Do you know that I got this data about you, which is deeply personal? I think you feel in a way an emotional loss that you should have known about it and you did not know about it. It almost looks like an intrusion. Right? We all think about when I figure out that there is some data that has been used that is deeply personal to me, I feel emotionally bad or good about it, right? And that places where people really feel good about data. So, you know, at some other stage, we should talk about data philanthropy. I think that is one of the big trends that is going to come you know, for organizations to debate and for individuals to debate. But I think of every time I permission my data to use, it should fall into the bucket of it makes my life simpler. Mm -hmm. It helps me make intelligent choices or it helps somebody else do something better. It is a philanthropy kind of thing. So I and, and, think- And that's fascinating. What do you mean by data philanthropy? You're talking about people like, um, you know, like large companies opening up data sets for others to use. Is that what you mean? It is that. And for donating data, you know, which with express permissions, which people may not have had access to, but for good, right? There's a lot of, data can do a lot of good. We continuously focus on, you know, uh, and I have a simplistic way, we continuously focus on saying use of data sometimes is always in some case a loss to the individual. It is actually enormous gain. If data, my data can be used for collective good, that is enormous gain. I, I would feel really good to participate in that. And people do that, right? People will disclose their blood group types. People will disclose lots of, you know, uh, health conditions in trials because they believe this is for the collective good, right? So it's an emotional asset. I need to feel good about giving my data and I need not feel bad when I use it. That's why I call it an emotional asset. And data philanthropy and is going to get real. Data philanthropy is going to get real, both from individuals and organizations. And I think that's just such a fascinating thing. You know, we've talked about how we need to encourage data culture. Now we're talking about data philanthropy. Um, but how does the average person as a professional who walks in and takes this for granted that, oh, I'll come into a meeting, there's going to be a lot of data and you don't question how the data was collected. You don't question um, what algorithm, whether there were, and there's obviously human bias that's, um, and the people who make the algorithms or the settings that go in. So as a, what advice would you have for a business professional about the way they're interacting with the data that's coming in their company, small, big, uh, ethical or not? What would you say about how people need to be aware in our working lives? So I, I, I would go back to two things, Suresh. So one, I do believe, and you know, if people work for companies that do not have a organized set of data standards and data principles, push for that, right? All senior leaders should push for that. But the second thing I would say is if you're sitting in a meeting where data is being, it is often the same questions that we used to ask in the non-data world, right? As to, hey, why should I believe this? How did we get to this and why did somebody else not get to it, right? So 
I can take you back to an earlier life in Citibank where one of my bosses used to keep asking, why should we believe that we have access to anything or intelligence that is better than anybody else? Is it your gut? Is it something else? The same question is still valid as to why should we feel good about it? And the third and the most explicit is I would say being always conscious and asking questions on bias filters would be a terrific thing to do. So it, it is quite an open discussion, I think, in every company now to say what might be the bias filters we might have used in this data. And then, you know, you say, hmm, that looks like a small one. That looks like a big one. I would not let that happen, right? Because the ultimate goal is two things. One is you do not want to come to wrong judgments. That would be a bad thing. But second, you also do not want to do something that results in harm or you know, it perpetuates biases. So you should ask questions. So you're going to have, so you're predicting a world in which you're soon going to have a Hippocratic oath for um, for data practitioners. You know, do no harm so, with the data. Yeah, I, I think you know, and and it will be a self-imposed oath. I don't know if it is coming from anywhere or anyone. It will be a self-imposed oath, and good managers will gravitate to it sooner than we think. That's interesting. So uh, I'm going to kind of um, go on a little bit into the. Uh, into the business aspect of this, and uh, you know, I know we could we could carry on with this conversation forever, but a couple of questions have always been troubling me. Right, one is the uh -huh. the fact that you know in a in a in a world where uh, data begets more data, better data begets you know better algorithms, better algorithms begets more you know data collection, and so it's a it's a it's a loop. Do you think the divide between the data rich companies, the data giants? and uh -huh. their ability to therefore compete, whether uh -huh. it's like, you know, the traditional, you know, what people talk about on the internet companies or large players like the MasterCards, the Ant Financials, et cetera, versus the rest of the companies in the world, is it going to widen? Or do you ever see that the smaller guys have a chance of fighting back in this? So terrific question. And again, without taking names, right? So what we think of, large data-rich companies might not axiomatically be the big companies by size. Right? There's so many other companies. So there are two or three levels of data that we can think about, right? That is macro data that is easily accessible to a lot of people, right? The size of the company doesn't uh, matter in terms of macro data. In fact, some of the more recent companies tend to have as much of better macro data because they've gotten more sophisticated at collecting that. This is publicly available data and it is stunning how much of data is publicly available. Mm -hmm. you know, whether you look at economic data, whether you look at other kinds of data, lots of it is. So macro data, I think the size, you know, company size does not matter. Where it begins to matter, and I think it will, that divide will disappear soon, is to actually build a good data practice requires a lot of infrastructure. So for a minute, park aside this governance thing that I told you. Governance comes from how you set up your own culture, data culture, and it comes as a trait. It is a leadership and it's a management trait. Right? If you don't have it, you don't have it. If you have it, you have it. So park mm -hmm. that aside. But if you take that aside, and I, I do think in future hiring, will actually start mapping data culture also, people's data culture, to the needs of, of the organization's data culture. So that'll, how hiring will change is a topic for another day. Uh, day. Mm -hmm. But if you look at 
data itself, there is an enormous amount of infrastructure that needs to be built to be actually good at building a data practice, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the good news, bad news part of that is there's some people who are ahead in building that infrastructure. There's some people who are behind. My belief is that over a point period of time, technology will make the cost of building that infrastructure not a big discriminant. It will not make it a big discriminant, right? So that goes to the third level, which is the data of individuals, right? What matters is the data of individuals. That discriminant will also be completely dependent and they could appear or disappear based on your brand and trust. It has nothing to do with the size of the company. Mm -hmm. I would permission my data. I continue to believe that permission data is what is going to happen in the future. And your brand, as it relates to data, most companies do not de define data ethics and data principles as a brand pillar, right? It is again surprising yeah, into how companies define the brand pillars. It'll happen in our lifetime. I think it's already but, happening, right? Apple's made a big deal about the fact that, you know, I think it's the first brand literally to go out there and say, we are very conscious. We're not the, like the other companies. So other companies like ours who put that out, but it is still a small sample. But what I would say is that the discriminant is going to be permission data. Permission data is based on trust and belief. And that has nothing to do with the size of the company. So if people mm -hmm. just think that because we are big, we'll sit on a large trove of data, that is a mistake. And if people believe that they can sit on a large trove of data beyond building the trust on the brand pillar of how data is used, that is also going to be a mistake. So I do not buy into this that, you know, it, size may have something to do with it. Size may have nothing to do with it. It has simply to do with access to macro data. It has to do with cost of a data infrastructure and it has to do with people's trust in your brand, small or big. So, Jana, uh, this is a fascinating conversation and I have one last question that I want to ask you before, um, uh -huh. you know, we take leave. And this is, um, you know, you're, you're, you're a three decade plus veteran uh, and it's, you know, you're still obviously kept in touch with and you're on top of all these trends in data and, and, and how it's being used on, or being misused by people. Now, when you walk into a room and you see these young people, you know, they're data scientists and data engineers and, um, uh -huh. and people who are so data savvy in many ways. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, how do you, you know, how do you feel? How do you interact? I mean, do you feel like you're bringing an intuition uh, an intuition knife to a data gunfight. How do you feel in that whole interaction and what's the learning out there uh, about how you're, you're coping with this world of young people who are totally savvy with the data? So the first thing is I accept that I'm not as smart as them. And <laughs> that is the, you know, I've tried at times to pretend that I'm equally smart, but that has not worked, right? So it's to be able to accept that they're far more smarter, right? So I see my role in that is not to either combat them. I do not see my, so it is simply, can I collaborate, cooperate and you know, build something that is worthwhile with them? And my role is at least to the extent that, you know, uh, I participate in some of these things. It is to always constantly remind about the boundaries. Right? Mm -hmm. so the boundaries are two or three. 
So one is a boundary of saying, when is it that you want to take a step back and see the results that are coming through, right? Because sometimes bad results can come through also based on the underlying data. So how quickly can you look at it? And is it worth building intuition into that? So suspending intuition till you see results is one good thing. Mm-hmm. If you have checked for you know, assumptions and bias filters upfront, then suspending your intuition till you see some results is a really good thing. But when you start seeing results, is the judgment of saying, should you bring your intuition into it or not into it? That's the first boundary. The second boundary is to always, you know, it is like what people do for a living in banking now, right? To constantly ask the question, saying, did we comply with all our risk policies? It is the same to ask that question that in doing this, have we complied with all the data policies or the data principles that we've had, right? And it, it is incumbent on the senior in the room to constantly be aware of that. It is not incumbent on somebody who's new to the company or is young to be. It is a collective responsibility, but assumed by the senior people in the organization and senior people in the room. The third boundary, which I think, I I do think, which has to be, is to constantly take the debate to one level higher as to how can we use our data to become a force for good? It's something that we talk about constantly in MasterCard, right? That how can we use data and data can do lots of things. We've never spoken about it, but the same data that we think is intrusive, obtrusive, and to my point of you know, an emotional asset that I would feel good as gifting, my emotional gift to somebody, it could reduce inequalities in, the, uh, in our world. It could reduce biases in our world, right? So periodically being the champion of data for good is a terrific thing. And then the last boundary that you want to constantly use is to say, is my data reinforcing silos or breaking down silos? So I'll take a simple mm-hmm. example that you're familiar with. So yep. lots of us build loyalty models, right? You're a pro at that, engagement models. But that is built in a silo of marketing, completely devoid of the risk team and completely devoid of the compliance team, mm-hmm. right? Data will, put, I, I continue to believe this, believe this, leaders who can see the silos data is building are actually going to be far ahead of leaders who perpetuate the silos. And so you will see the silos come in. Marketing silos will become more entrenched. Compliance silos will become more entrenched. But we'll never say that on the reward offer. Should I be also factoring in risk that is likely to come in? Should I be likely to, you know, likely to build in some compliance concern? And maybe the answer is not, right? But to constantly be aware of silos is one big thing that I think at least I try and do always ask the question, how does it reconcile to something else? Thank you very much, Jana, for this. This has been such a great conversation. I actually, to my listeners as well, I intended to start this conversation by asking Jana about how large payment networks, you're seeing so much data flows, how are you doing that? Uh, But it kind of evolved almost naturally into a conversation where I think we've addressed a lot of fundamental issues in this uh, podcast. In fact, so many interesting things. The need to bring a data culture, data philanthropy, data as an emotional asset, Data as a force for good. And I think uh, that's one of the things I've always enjoyed about talking to you. I think hiring for data compatibility will be a big big thing in our lives. And data checklists when you're actually sitting in there and doing it. So many different things that I think we normally don't think about. uh, And uh, that's what makes, I think, 
most conversations with you are really fascinating. Thank you very much, uh, Jana, for coming on that. And, uh, you know, uh, really enjoyed talking to you about this stuff. And I think we'll do a follow-on one to probably get into some of these um, discussions in a bit more detail. Thank you sure, very thank much you. for being on thank the show. Thank you, Suresh. Thank you. And thank you to the listeners and viewers for listening uh, to one more episode of Slaves to the Algo or how, you know, we want to demystify the age of the algorithm. Thank you. We have new episodes coming out every week, sometimes twice a week. Each will seek to bring a different and fresh perspective to the topic. Please subscribe to the podcast channel and share it widely in your network. I look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Meanwhile, stay safe personally in the age of COVID and stay relevant professionally in the age of AI.